Greetings students in AIP 301 Political Parties and Social Movements. My name is Dr Jeff Robinson and I'm the chair of this unit. This is the lecture component of the first week's seminar in AIP 301. Unfortunately, due to a computer malfunction at Warren Ponds, the seminar was not recorded. Um, I hope this will be fixed by next week. So I am re-recording the lecture component of the seminar. So this will run for um, about um, an hour. Okay, so I'll be working today through um, what we have here, which is a PDF of the Prezi. In the um, class, I went through the Prezi, but my experience is that having the Prezi open tends to um, overload um, memory and causes um, the capture software to crash. So I'm going through the PDF version. Okay, so what am I gonna be looking at today? I'm gonna be looking at some questions about what we mean by a social movement, different approaches towards analyzing a social movement, and a framework for analysis of social movements. So I'll both be starting with you know, this idea of a social movement, which is kind of fundamental underpinning of the first half of the unit. And I'll be outlining how we are going to approach the study of social movements. So that's what my focus is going to be about today. So a lot of the content that I flag is material that I will go through in more detail in weeks to come. So first of all, thinking about this question of social movements and political parties more broadly. There's this question of how do you change the world, um, which is the title of a book by the um, famous British historian Eric Hobsbawm, in which he collected a, a, a range of his essays on Marxism as a political project. And this, I think, is the central concern of the unit. Human beings may well want to change their social environment, how they interact with each other, how they interact with the natural world and so on. They may want to change it in ways that might be regarded as progressive. They may well want to change it in ways that might be regarded as going the other way. But how to go about doing this? And very roughly, perhaps, I think you can distinguish between traditions that have emphasised the idea of government, the holding of power, the holding up power by political parties in a democratic or semi-democratic regime versus ideas of protest and activism from outside of the system of political parties. So that's the kind of underlying question, I think, in the, union, in the unit. You know, what drives these strategies? Um, what makes them more effective? Why do some things fail? Why do other things not fail? And this is what I'll be looking at, drawing material um, across a broad range of social movements and also a broad range of political ideologies as well. So before we sort of dive into getting a precise definition of social movements, I think it's interesting to think about why is it that some movements emerge and some movements don't? And I was thinking about this um, last week when I, I, I wrote this lecture in the context of the debate about um, changes to um, JobSeeker and New Start. And you know, some of you may be aware of the ongoing dispute about the level of these programs of support, calls for them to be increased, 
and the government finally relenting to a degree and having um, a relatively small increase. And this is a quote from um, an article by um, Judith Sloan, the conservative economist um, writing in The Australian. And Sloan obviously approves of the government's actions. And I was struck by her comment where she says, quote, the increase is largely in keeping with the views of the population, as opposed to welfare lobbyists, activist academics and journalists. Now, the question I asked um, my classes at Berber and Warren Ponds was, well, who in a way is left out of that group of people that she sees as having a view about the level of Newstart? And you know, the answer, perhaps fairly obviously, of course, are people actually in receipt of Newstart themselves. They're not defined in this kind of framework as people who have a view, who are entitled to have a view, who you would expect to be seen as being stakeholders, to use the contemporary jargon in this kind of process. And this kind of omission of these people, I think, um, was, was something you saw in um, a fair degree of media commentary um, about this issue. You know, mostly media commentary from the right, but even perhaps some, I think, from more centrist commentators. Now, you might say, well, you know, it probably isn't that surprising. You know, this is a dispersed, um, socially stigmatised, economically marginalised group of people and so on. But if we look, for example, say, at times past in other countries, at various times it has been possible to mobilise um, recipients um, of government support um, payments. So this is a picture from the United States in 1968. Um, showing a march um, organised by a group called the National Welfare Rights Organisation. And this was a grouping that emerged in the 60s as part of this you know, upsurge of social movement activism and enthusiasm during this period, um, a membership very heavily dominated by African-American women, and in some aspects perhaps you know, a notable example of non-white feminism during this period. You know, the stereotype perhaps of American feminism in the 60s is perhaps of a very middle class, you know, white college student, frustrated mother in the suburb driven process. But we can actually see that it sort of cast its inspirational network um, um, a lot more broadly and was capable of inspiring action. So in a way, you know, I think this sort of brings out something that there's always potentially discontent in a society. You know, the possibility is always out there that people will mobilise themselves, that they will mobilise themselves in collective action to try to challenge the status quo. But only occasionally does this, is this potential actually realised as it come into existence. And, you know, of course, even when this does happen, this mobilisation may not be sustained. You know, the National Welfare Rights Organisation faded from the picture in the 1970s and the climate of public policy and elite discourse in the United States shifted in a direction that was very hostile towards ideas of so-called unconditional welfare. And it's only really perhaps very recently um, that we can perhaps see signs of the pendulum um, moving back in the other direction in, in the United States. So that interests me. You know, I think it's, it's, it's always interesting, I think, when you look at the world to think, well, what are the things you don't see? Because often the things you don't see in the world are actually a lot more important than what you see, reading the silences and so on. Okay, so a little bit about the overall structure at the unit. Um, obviously, um, 11 topics. It's organised around a first half about social movements, 
And the half about social movements is very much set up on the basis of developing a kind of analytical framework to look at social movements, some sort of key concepts that you can be applied to thinking about how social movements operate and applying those. So in previous years, I've had a thematic kind of approach, you know, one week on the labor movement, one week on the environment movement or whatever. Um, I don't really think that works. I've, I think that sort of drowns students in facts and it's difficult to see what the pattern is. So this is a new approach this year, which I hope um, students will find more engaging. Um, it's causing me to think a lot. It's also involving a lot of um, rewriting as well. Then in the second half of the unit, we move across to political parties. Um, there I've kept some aspects of a kind of thematic approach. Now I'm thinking about liberalism, socialism and conservatism and how they express themselves in terms of thinking about political parties. But I've also, I think, included a more sort of organised theoretical reflection about the question of what is a political party? Why might it be in the advantage of people involved in politics to form a political party, which is not actually um, inevitable? And I sort of conclude the unit then by thinking, well, about some contemporary trends. You know? Are we seeing an age in which political parties are disappearing, you know, in which they're merging, in which they're losing their distinctive identity? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is this actually happening? And so on. And my final topic is going to reflect on the relationship between political parties and social movements. Now, there's been a lot of talk about this in recent years. Um, the idea of the movement party. Um, it's a lot more complex than you might think it um, can be. So I'm thinking this last topic might focus on a you know, kind of comparison of left and right wing versions of that, maybe contrasting the kind of relative success of Trumpism in the United States, I think, with the um, you know, defeat suffered, say, by the Sanders campaign in the United States and Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. OK, so now digging down to this question of what is a social movement? And the lens I'm going to be approaching this through is through um, the work of a range of scholars, but one person in particular who's had a big impact in this field is an American called Charles Tilley. And Tilley is very much a kind of historical sociologist. Tilley says, well, if we think about human beings and human beings living in society, there is a very long history of contentious politics, of people challenging those in power and authority and you know, riots, rebellions, peasants going slow, etc. Very long period of this. But Tilly says that a social movement is a distinct subset of contentious politics. You have contentious politics as a very big category, a social movement is a kind of subset of that. And what's distinctive about a social movement, as Tilly and his co-thinkers describe, is that you can very much trace its origins to emerging in Western capitalist liberal societies, moving towards democracy from the mid 18th century. And the distinctive feature of a social movement is that it rejects a kind of local or particularist aspect a social movement says, well, we are, we are you know, group X or Y or Z, but we have a particular way of trying to change this. So peasants might think, well, you know, once peasants would have said, we're exploited and we're suffering misery, 
let's arise against that. Let's kill the local landlord in Christian Europe, unfortunately. They might have said, let's go and massacre the Jews and so on. This kind of response. By the latter 18th century, people are beginning to say, well, the way to fix our plight is to influence the government and to influence society more broadly, to change the government, to change social norms and values and practices. So, you know, tendencies such as literacy and in particular the rise of nation states, the idea that you have these territories, that they are ruled over by something called a government, a government exercises the monopoly the monopoly of legitimate violence, the government controls things, you want to change things, you have an impact on the government. So that's the distinctive feature of a social movement. There's a very long tradition of contentious politics, but a social movement particularly turns and focuses that. Now, you know, there are interesting divisions about how you might distinguish one form of activity from another, you know, which is the social movement or not? You know, do you think perhaps about rights, you know, large-scale rights, you know, perhaps marked by property disturbance, violence and killing? Are they forms of social movements or do they represent older forms of contentious politics? And there's some things I will touch on in the unit. Now, thinking further, um, extending the definition or they are now moving on to a definition of social movements as such. You can say, I think, that what they represent are enduring mobilised networks of individuals and groups supporting or opposing social change. So they are networks. They're not just individuals acting in isolation. They're individuals who feel a sense of commonality, who interact with each other. They're mobilised. They're actually doing something. They're not just complaining among themselves, they're not just feeling unhappy, they develop a kind of collective identity and sense of purpose. And they're enduring as well. They're not one-off things, they exist over a period. And they may have you know, periods of tremendous support and following, they may fade away, they may then come back and so on, but they're enduring. So they are these collective identities. They're made up of individuals, but I think they're more than just the sum of the individuals. That's what I would see a social movement as involving. Now, the activities of a social movement as well go beyond lobbying or electoral politics. You know, they can certainly do that sort of thing, but there's an element of disruption, of trying to challenge the status quo, of trying to bring themselves to the attention of governments and citizens by challenging the way that things are done. Protests, riots, pickets, boycotts, etc. And they construct an identity among their members and at their enemies. So people in a social movement think, well, I am in a social movement X, you know, because I'm female or African-American, etc. This is my identity. This matters to me. And they also construct an identity of their enemies. You know, they know what they are against. They know we are the goodies, they are the baddies. This kind of dichotomization is set up in their frame. So, you know, in the on-campus lectures, you know, I ask students, well, you know, you think about the environment movement. You know, who does the environment movement create as being its enemies, its foes, 
Well, you know, very often it's the coal industry, it's mining companies and so on, focusing on that. They also, I think, in terms of identities, create the identities of activists. So yes, you know, you've got this mass of people who are brought into social movements for protests and other forms of action, but they're sustained and kept going by this core of people who are activists. And these are people who come to define their own personal identity you know, as social movement activists. This is what I do. This is my life. You know, this is quite potentially my job, but it's more than just you know, something I do for pay or nine to five. It defines who I am. So that's what a social movement does. Now, institutions are usually parts of social movements, um, social movement organisations, as the Americans call them. But movements are not reducible to institutions. They are components of movements, but a movement is more than just institutions. A movement is this broader sense of collective identity and so on. Okay. Now sort of you know, re refining the definition a bit more. Yeah, first of all, I think, you know, it's important to realise that social movements are not necessarily progressive. Historically, I think when people have thought of social movements, they've often tended to think of movements you would categorise as being left-wing, you know, women's equality, um, sexual liberation and so on. But it's quite possible for people to mobilise and push back from the other direction. And, you know, in many aspects, you know, the story of many developed economies in the 70s and 80s was this kind of counter-mobilisation, you know, the development of conservative social movements that pushed back against radical ones. And conservatives, in a sense, actually learning from the example of radicals about how to build a social movement. Um, I think, too, the sphere of social movement activity can vary. You, know, you often perhaps think of social movements in terms you know, of the masses, of big protests, of hundreds of thousands of people out there in the streets and so on. But you could, I think, have a social movement that moved in much more confined circles, potentially perhaps among elites. And you know, some scholars such as Damien Carl have said, for example, that the rise of neoliberalism, you know, this shift towards free market policies um, among governments and businesses from the 1980s was a kind of elite social movement. You know, fairly small groups of people, but ideologically committed and motivated people fighting to change public policy in this kind of insider space. Um, yeah, there are always questions about you know, what sort of institutions or organisations can be part of a social movement. Now, is it just non-government organisations? Um, do they have to be organisations that have been specifically set up for the purposes of a social movement? Or could they... Or could sort of established organisations morph into something else? You know, could a church become a social movement organisation? Um, could parts of a government be seen as being part of a social movement, potentially? You know, you think of maybe human rights agencies. Could they be seen as part of a broader movement for human rights? And the focus of social movements, although I think it is on the bigger picture, you know, might not necessarily be on governments. You could think of movements, for example, that have emerged within churches, you know, challenging perhaps church hierarchies, fighting for the ordination of women and so on. Maybe even sort of movements perhaps within the corporate sector trying to change practices. I'd say as well, 
Also, that social movements are concerned with values, crucially concerned with the creation of values and the transformation of values. So changing sort of capital P policy is only part of what they do. And they want to change the values of individuals, but in a collective kind of way. And, you know, I think one way of thinking about this, you know, might be to think, say, about, say, animal liberation and associated movements. Yes, you know, movements for animal liberation, you know, want to encourage veganism, people not using animal products. But I think they want to encourage veganism, you know, not just in the sense of calling upon individuals to, you know, develop their conscience as being that they don't make use of animal products, but creating new social norms, you know, new social norms that discourage the use of animal products and so on. So changing collective values. So the work social movements do is both sort of political and policy driven and organisational, but it's also emotional and transformative work at the level of individuals. And it's also cultural work as well. And the development of scholarship around social movements, I think, is sort of placed more and more emphasis, I think, on these kind of emotional and cultural things as being um, equally important and so on. Okay, now I'm gonna say a little bit, this is um, frame 10, frame 10, about sort of ways of thinking about social movements. Because you know, this is a level three unit, it's a capstone unit, and I think it's important for students to be aware that how academics think about politics and try to understand it and explain it often reflects very different worldviews and understandings. And simplifying a lot, you know, I sometimes think that you can distinguish between those people who, when they look at something, you know, very much perhaps say, well, what's going on in the level of detail here? You know, who are the individuals going on here? You know, what are the little microprocesses going on? You know, the people who, when they look at a forest, see a big group of trees and think, that's interesting. You know, why are these trees together in a, you know, a group? How do we explain this and so on? Another way of thinking, however, I think, <coughs> tends to emphasize what you might call a kind of big picture approach. You know, people talk about the forest. You know, the forest is this big thing. It's more than the sum of the trees in, the, in, in it. It's a kind of whole complex ecosystem of its own. And these are sort of competing approaches, I think, in the social sciences and the humanities. You know, you'll have your big picture speculative approach, people. You'll have your much more micro detail kind of approach. And... The study of social movements, I think, is interesting because you can sort of see this dichotomy working out. So simplifying a lot, I think. One tradition, the kind of, you know, seeing the big picture, seeing the forest tradition, I think it's very much associated with thinkers from a kind of European tradition. And... In that kind of European tradition, you know, you tend to take for granted the idea of social conflict, class conflict, political violence, and so on, because Europe has a kind of long history of that. So you're not surprised by the existence of social movements, because you say, well, there are always protesting and challenging forces in society. Now, you might say that those forces have changed. 
you know, you might say, well, it used to be the working class, which was the force at protest and challenge in society. Now that's changed. Now the forces at protest, you know, come from other things, you know, from new social movements, feminist and environmental movements and so on. But you look at society and you think there's this history of this. And you perhaps think very much in terms of, you know, understanding these processes by kind of, you know, engaged scholarship, you know, in which academics interact with activists, question them about their own practice, develop their own theoretical approach and so on. Now, the United States, I think, perhaps comes from a somewhat different tradition. Now, America has that history of social consensus, um, you know, often a very oppressive one, but, you know, a history of liberalism, a history of individualism, a history perhaps of ideas of academic neutrality and attachment. So although American scholars are thinking about social movements, you know, very much identify with and are sympathetic to the goals of social movements, and in many cases, the sort of pioneers of American social movement scholarship were people who'd been in the 60s and then became academics in the 70s and 80s. I think it's true that they, they're more concerned perhaps with the why. You know, the Europeans maybe think about how, maybe the Americans think more about why. You know, why do people join, why do people join social movements? You know, it's not inevitable. Maybe the default human setting is apathy. Um, I'll sort of talk more about this next week in the context of rational choice theory and so on. So I just think that's something to keep in mind in terms of approaches to social movements. The approach I'm taking in the unit, perhaps, you know, maybe it skews somewhat to that kind of um, American approach, I think. Um, way the unit used to be constructed, maybe more fitted that kind of European approach where it's, you know, looking through it at individual movements. But, it, you know, it's something that I can sort of see, I think, um, both sides of the case there. Okay, so now I'm going to move on towards talking about questions of um, an analytical approach to think about social movements. What are sort of key problems we think about when we try to understand social movements? And I think the first one, this being slide 12 to think about, is you know, this question of collective action, thinking about social movements as a form of collective action. Now, this is very much drawing upon the you know, outline that there is in Sidney Tarot in his book Power and Movement, which is one of the readings for this week. But you know, there's that famous quote by Karl Marx from um, Capital in 1867, you know, where Marx talks about, quote, the revolt of the working class, a class always increasing in numbers and disciplined, united, organised by the very mechanism of the process of capitalist production itself. So Marx was you know, a pioneer theorist of social movements, you know, trying to say, well, the things we see happening in society are the result of deep-seated social um, processes. So what Marx is doing there is, in a sense, he's identifying kind of mobilisation potential. You know, there are more workers, more of them are working in big workplaces and so on. But we know now that Marx was missing out on some stages of thinking about this, because there may well be the mobilisation potential for the emergence of a social movement, but it's by no means inevitable that that happens. So socialism became a thing in Europe, didn't really become a thing in the United States. 
you know, despite the fact that if you looked objectively at the United States, there's you know, huge gaps between rich and poor, massively powerful capitalists and so on. Socialism never really got off the ground in the United States. Why? And there's a big literature on this. What I think we can say is that identities then are constructed. They're not automatic. Now, I would say that there has to be something going on in the social world to lead to a social movement, but it's not an inevitable process. And there is always discontent, alienation, feelings of oppression and powerlessness out there in the community. Why is it only in some cases that it's transformed into a social movement is something I want to think about. And a lot of this is very much about this process of creating identities where people come to see themselves not just as individuals, not just even as exploited individuals, but as individuals who share a common identity and purpose with another per person. So in this view, you know, you need social movement organisations, but their role is always ambiguous. Now, if social movement organisations, in a way, lose touch with the actual grassroots of a social movement, they move towards vanguardism, you know, they become dictatorial and domineering about a social movement. Alternately, they can potentially become bureaucratised and routine, you know, relying on paid staff, just lobbying governments, just potentially becoming co-opted and being part of the system. Now, I think it's interesting to think about that, moving on to slide 13, in the context of Indigenous activism in Australia. Because Indigenous people in Australia have thousands of organisations, thousands of Indigenous-focused organisations. You know, there's even an active, specific act at Federal Parliament that encourages their operation. There's a um, register of Indigenous corporations and so on. So that's a big part of Indigenous life in Australia are these organisations, you know, providing health, educational, legal services and so on. You think of you know, native title representative bodies, land councils and so on. Big part there. But although they're an expression of Indigenous culture and awareness, they you know, also have to confront the challenges of being in a settler colonial state that they are trying to influence and in a sense playing by the rules of that state. You know, so being incorporated under this act, fulfilling government's requirements and so on. So... There's an example, I think, you know, of some of the difficulties that an oppressed group faces in terms of social movement organisation. You need to create these organisations, but how do you ensure they actually become part of a living social movement rather you know, than just being bogged down in the process of um, administering, applying for grants, um, um, delivering services and so on. And you know, that makes me think, for example, of how, you know, if you think about the charity sector, um, conservative governments in Australia have often tended to say, well, charity sector organisations should just be delivering charitable services. You know, they shouldn't be engaged in lobbying on behalf of their clients or trying to change government policy. They should just be out there delivering services. So, you know, that's a, a, another example of this issue here. Okay, so... That's sort of thinking about mobilisation, organisational identity, and I'll talk about, I'll talk more about all of those topics next week.
Another question, of course, is you know, the activity of movements. And if we think about social movements, you know, we think of a lot of their activity as being performative. Now, and performativity involves very often the demonstration. And we sort of take the idea of the demonstration for granted, uh, people with a banner, people with a placard, people chanting slogans and so on, people making a kind of display on one level that's intended to be disruptive. Now, and here's an example of, of this. Um, now, you can see, slide 15, that a demonstration, and again here I'm, you know, I'm drawing on Tilly's work, is an individual example of what he calls a repertoire of contention. There's a whole range of activities that social movements can do that seeks to disrupt and challenge the status quo. And the protest is one form, but there might be completely different forms. Now, at one extreme forms of armed struggle might be one, or people might engage in boycotts of protests, or, you know, as for example, in the campaign um, for same-sex marriage in the United States, you know, people might turn up in groups to the registry office, you know, and demand to be granted marriage licenses and so on. So there's a spectrum of these things, repertoires of contention. In practice, you know, there often tends to be a fairly small number of them. And do they work? Are they successful? You know, do people just tune out from demonstrations? Does violence actually work? Is violence counterproductive? That's something I'll be talking about. I'll have sort of a whole week talking about this idea of repertoires of contention as an aspect of what social movements do. Now, related to that, I think, is this question of framing. And this is the argument that a lot of what social movements do necessarily is a form of cultural politics. Social movements have to build a broad basis of support. They have to appeal to social values that are widely spread. So if you think, for example, perhaps about indigenous people in Australia, you know, they are a small minority in a colonial settler state. How do they build popular support? You know, how do you get white people, settler people, because obviously lots of settlers are non-white these days, to support indigenous struggles? How do you present your kind of claim? You know, do you talk about human rights and equality? Do you talk about prior indigenous occupancy and sovereignty? Do you talk about indigenous social disadvantage? Lots of different roads and processes you can go down. And, you know, thinking back to, um, you, know, you know, a few slides earlier, you know, I was talking about, you know, Marx's prediction of socialist revolution. Well, you know, there have been socialist revolutions in the 20th century, but very often they've really only happened when the cause of socialism has been linked into other discourses. You know, so in China and Vietnam and Cuba, where sort of, you know, regimes that emerged out of socialist revolutions are still in power, a lot of their appeal was nationalist. You know, socialism was a way of resisting Western imperialism and capitalism. And I think religion is another example of that as well. You know, we've seen the rise of Islamic politics as a major force in the world in recent decades. But 
The only state you can say that is a kind of successful on its own terms, although you know, certainly very repressive in many ways, of an Islamic regime is you know, the Iranian state. And one reason for its survival is linked to discourses around nationalism, you know, seen as Iran you know, entitled to be a great country, throwing off the influence of the Americans and so on. Now, in the same-sex marriage campaign, you, know, you saw a lot of debate about framing, both sides trying to compete to widely shared values, you know, the welfare of children, the virtues of individual love and so on. And framing is often very much this kind of war for the use of terms like freedom. You know, terms that have this very broad amorphous meaning and which are popular, each side will try to grab one side at them. It, it will sort of grab hold of this concept, you know, and say, this is our concept. So this is a big part of what movements do. And this process of framing as well is also about building support as well. It's about how you appeal to your potential constituency and you represent your claims in a way that that constituency understands. And uh, you can use different frames appealing to different groups. You know, if you think about perhaps the indigenous movement as it emerged in the 1960s in Australia, the kind of outward-looking frame is one perhaps that very much stresses ideas of equal rights, disadvantage, and so on. But perhaps the frame that appeals to many Indigenous activists coming into the movement is a more nationalist one, you know, centering on ideas of Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. So multiple sort of, you know, frames um, can be used, I think. Now, finally coming up to another aspect. Okay, you're having your social movement and you've worked out your repertoires of contention and you've struck the right balance between centralism and disorganisation and you've got attractive frames and everybody's very excited and so on. But that's one side of the social change story because the success of a social movement is often very much shaped by the forces that oppose it. And, you know, the case of same-sex marriage in Australia is obviously a good example. Uh, there was majority support for same-sex marriage in Australia long before the law ended up being changed. So you could say, in a way, well, this was, you know, a very successful social movement in terms of building support, but encountered these political obstacles. And if we're to explain the success or failures of social movements, a lot depends on political structures. Now, you know, in the lecture, you know, I you know, was asking people about you know, why was same-sex marriage so, so long delayed in Australia and so on, you know, and you might like to think about that yourself. But this, I think, is this brings us to this concept of political opportunity structure, which is something else associated with... Um, American scholars um, like Charles Tilley and Sidney Tarrow and Doug McAdam and so on. In a way that the success of a movement often very much depends on the kind of strength of the opposition. How powerful are the forces opposed to a movement? 
How are they embedded in the institutions, embedded in society? And in Australia, you had a, a, a tradition of adversary politics, a two-party political system, a two-party political system in which the Conservative Party usually won elections, and in which there was not majority support for same-sex marriage within the Conservative Party. Now, a majority of a majority can equal a minority, but that's what happened with the case of same-sex marriage. Now, revolutionary outcomes often occur when the political opportunity structure is transformed. So again, you know, going back to you know, Marx's 19th century prediction about there being a socialist revolution. Well, there was a socialist revolution in Russia in 1917. Didn't turn out very well after the revolution. But one reason why it happened is the political opportunity structure had changed. Popular allegiance to and support for the state in Russia had broken down. There was a power vacuum in, into which revolutionaries were able to move and reconstruct a new authority. If you look at same-sex marriage, I think one big driver in the end for the success of the campaign, you know, and for the more general decline of homophobia overall, is the collapse in the social authority of organised religion. Now, people used to think that the role of the churches was to do morality. You might not go to church, but you somehow thought that they had the right to you know, provide guidance on matters of sexual morality. That really faded, an example at secularisation, but particularly I think, say, you know, that the sexual abuse scandals in the churches really undercut their moral authority and was one of the reasons for major rapid public shifts in attitudes towards homosexuality. Now, I think as well that you can have a kind of feedback process um, in the context of um, a social movement and the political opportunity structure. You know, a social movement can influence the political structure in ways that facilitate the mobilisation of that social movement. That social movement becomes stronger. That can then move into having more impact on the government, which makes the social movement stronger. And this is often historically very much been the case, for example, with trade union membership. Historically, trade union membership tends, when it goes up, it tends to go up very quickly. You know, these waves of discontent emerge. They transform government policy. People feel more empowered, more able to organise. There's this dynamic reinforcement. And this is what happened in you know, Australia um, in the early 20th century. It's what happened in the United States in the 1930s and so on. So this is another aspect of social movements, and this is something that I will be looking at and discussing. Okay, well, that concludes the lecture for this week, a bit shorter in this format because I haven't got the back and forth with um, students in class. But I've talked about defining a social movement, how we might distinguish it from other forms of contentious politics. I've talked about different approaches towards analysing social movements, and I've sketched a way in which I will focus on looking at social movements. So next week, I'll sort of be going back to the first of those aspects. I talked about these questions of identity and mobilisation. So identity politics, um, huge issue there. 
you know, network versus formal structures and so on. That's what we'll be looking at next week. So thank you for your attendance. And I hope that next week I will actually be able to um, record the class which is given at Warren Ponds.